0: I'm excited again to get into the book of Revelation this morning. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, uh, starting into this next section of Revelation. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 to 7 actually this morning. I titled this morning's message, The Seven Churches in Revelation, and then I put Ephesus. And that's the one we're going to look at. This morning, the church at Ephesus, I shared uh, actually over the last two weeks that there's a key verse in chapter one. Look at your Bibles at verse 19. This is a verse that I believe kind of unlocks, if we could say, uh, the outline to the book of Revelation. Look what Jesus said to John. He says, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now, we saw and we spent two weeks in chapter one. We've looked at the things which John saw. John saw that vision of the son of man he also had this greeting that he was given and instructed to give to the seven churches that were there in asia minor we see that chapter one i believe according to verse 19 i believe is the things which john saw It's the things that he heard, and it's the things that he saw in chapter 1. We're going to be starting chapter 2 this morning, and it's going to go all the way to chapter 3. And within those two chapters, I believe it's the second part of this outline. Write the things, John, the things which are. And I believe what he's making reference there to is chapter 2 and chapter 3, which are the seven letters to the seven churches. Now, I've shared in the first study that we did on dispensations of time. I believe that throughout the Bible, we see various dispensations of how God has dealt with mankind, how God has dealt with the church in different ways. Under the Old Covenant was under the law. Under the New Covenant, it was the New Testament, the New Covenant. We have a dispensation that's coming, I believe, that is going to be the tribulation period at the end of the church age. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation period that is going to come upon the whole earth. Following that seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be A thousand year millennial reign where Christ is going to establish his his throne here on earth. And we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. I believe that will be a literal thousand year millennial reign of Christ. What follows the thousand years is going to be eternity. We're going to go into eternity. God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And so we see in our outline, chapter 1, the things which you have seen, John. In chapter 2 and 3, write the things which are, which I believe he's speaking of the church age, the seven letters to the seven churches. And then the third part of this outline is from chapter 4 to chapter 22, which is the last chapter of the book of Revelation. You could make these notes in your Bible. Chapter 4 to chapter 22, I believe the church has been removed. I believe the rapture happens at chapter 4, verse 1, and it goes all the way to chapter 19, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 20 to 22, it's going to be the millennial reign of Christ and the new heaven and the new earth and eternity with the Lord. John was instructed, instructed for that uh, part of this to write the things which will take place after this. After what? I believe what he's talking about is after the church age. After the church is removed from chapter 4 to the second coming of Jesus Christ in chapter 19 and even to chapter 22. John was instruct, instructed to write the things which will take place after this. That's our outline. That's what we're going to be following as we go through this revelation. In chapter 1, John opened with that introductory part of his letter, and he gave a special blessing to everyone who would read, everyone who would hear, and everyone who would do the things that are written in this book a special blessing upon you. You're going to get that as we go through. If you've never been through it before, you have a special blessing upon you as you go through this letter of revelation. He also, in chapter 1, gave the greeting to the seven churches that we're about to read in chapters 2 and 3. You see that in verses 4 to 8. John saw a vision of the Son of Man, the glorified Christ, in verses 9 to 18. And then in verse 19, we have our key verse that I've already read, the outline verse. And then in verse 20 of chapter 1, we have Jesus explaining the mystery of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands. Now, the seven stars that he held in his right hand, I believe, are the messengers, the angels, the pastors of these seven churches, which are the golden lampstands that John had this vision of. We start this morning looking at the church called Ephesus. Now, the name Ephesus actually by definition means desired. And I, by the way, this is Kyle's artwork. I had to sign a disclaimer for me to use it. Uh, he drew that, that picture, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, that's his artwork, but it's Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. Now I've got a few pictures, a few slides before we get into this letter that I want to show you because I know you're all about pictures, you know, you like to see pictures. So I've got a few of this city. The first one, well, let's look at this first, Asia Minor, you see that? That's modern day Turkey today, Uh, right out in front of these churches. That's the Aegean Sea. You can see the island of Patmos. You see that down on there? And then you see the seven churches that were there in Asia Minor. Those are the churches that John is writing to in chapter two and three of this letter. Now, the letter that we're first gonna read is the church at Ephesus. You see that it's about 40 miles from Patmos to Ephesus, that first church that was gonna receive this letter. Now, let's go to the next slide. If you can see that, probably cannot at the back, but this is somebody that has drawn Uh, that has gone into this area of Ephesus where it was located and found these particular areas and drew out what the city would have looked like in the day. Ephesus, this city of Ephesus uh, uh, in the Roman Empire, which encompassed a large area, there was nine different cities throughout the Roman Empire that were referred to as leading cities or a foremost city within the Roman Empire. The people that lived in that city or these particular cities had special privileges that were given to them. These were strategic cities for the Roman Empire. This particular city of Ephesus that was primarily a gentile city It was a very wealthy city, but it was also a pagan city. There was a lot of things uh, within this city that would have been difficult, actually, for a, a Christian to live there. Similar to what it's like to live in our nation today, in America. A lot of temptations, a lot of the things that were there in this city are things that we, as Christians today, have to live with. And have to fight against because there's a lot of things in our world today of the same but we know of this city uh, that it had a population of maybe close to 250,000 people so wrap your head around that very large city very wealthy city a pagan city a lot of idolatry that went on A lot of witchcraft within this uh, city that took place. You can read in the book of Acts that when Paul was there, they actually brought a lot of the uh, books out that were uh, the magic books and all that and put them in the middle of the city and had a burning of those books when these people gave their life to Christ. That's the kind of city that we're going to read about this morning. We can go to another slide here. Uh, next slide. Uh, if you can see that, the, the temple of Diana. Uh, the, you see the one pillar standing up there. That's all that's left. Uh, as the archaeologists went into the city to un- try to uncover this this uh, great, magnificent temple of Diana, the only thing that was left standing is that one pillar that you see there. Now, on the next slide, uh, one here. You see uh, uh, the idol of the goddess Diana, or also known as Artemis. And you can see that uh, this was the idol that people worshipped. There was a moneymaker also. People bought this idol. Craftsmen made this idol. It was in many of the homes that, that were out throughout, not just Ephesus, but also throughout the whole Roman Empire. She was one of the supreme goddesses that people worshiped in the day. That again was something that was within this city. We have another uh, picture here. That would have been an artist rendition of this Temple of Diana uh, that was there. And they're pretty confident in the layout of what, what you're seeing. But the temple was 425 feet long. I just want you to get the sense of this city and what it was like to be a Christian living in ephesus at the time this temple that was 425 feet long 220 feet wide and 60 feet tall had 127 marble pillars that surrounded on the outside 36 of those pillars were overlaid with gold and jewels it housed a huge image of the fertility goddess diana of which brought a major income to this city by the selling of its images to the people that lived there. The city was also known for, as I already said, practicing magic, soothsaying. It, was a, it also was a big part of the economy there within the city. In other words, we could say of the city of Ephesus that it was a stronghold for Satan. Paul's ministry uh, in this city was the place that he spent the most time in the book of Acts. He was there for three years, ministering there to the church, uh, teaching in the school of Tyrannus. He ministered there with Timothy. He ministered there with Aquila and Priscilla. He also discipled Apollos in this city. And so you can read, if you want to read more about the background of what took place in Ephesus, you could read it in Acts chapter 19 and 20 in your Bibles. We also have, let's go to the next slide here. Uh, That's still standing today, the harbor road that led down. You can see that long road, that led down uh, toward the sea or to the sea. Remember that Ephesus is is a city right on the coast. Of the Aegean Sea. Uh, we have the theater uh, there also that held 25,000 people within this theater. Um, go to the next slide. That is the remains of the Temple of Domitian. Remember I shared about the emperors and Domitian was the one that wanted everyone to worship him as God. He was the one emperor that began to demand that people would worship him as God. Well, he thought it was fit that within this city of Ephesus that he would have his own temple there erected. That's what's left of the temple of Domitian today. We also have the next slide, the odium, which is another open-air a place that people would meet. This would have been a place where Apostle Paul would have spent some time and even as he was being persecuted in this city. We have the next slide, the marble road that leads down to the um, Celeste Library that was also there, this magnificent library that housed thousands and thousands of books within it. The Celeste Library, there's another picture. uh, That's it there. That's the remains. That's what's there today. If you want to take a trip and go on to the, uh, a trip to the seven churches of Asia, you'll see those things live. But I just brought you some pictures so you can get a, a little bit of a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about the church that was living and having to minister in a city, the city of Ephesus. In these two chapters... We have seven letters that are in these two chapters that are written to seven literal churches that were in John's day in seven cities. Now, if you go back to that map uh, of the Asia and the seven churches, you can see that these letters would have went from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea, these were called a circular type of letter. In other words, John was writing a letter, the letter would have been delivered by a messenger to these churches, and they would have read probably all of the letters. They would have read all of the letters even to the other churches, but these letters would have been passed on to the next. It would have been just like a a courier taking it from one to the next, and then they would read this letter to the fellowship of church, churches that were there. Now, eventually, as we're reading it today, it would have made its way through churches throughout the whole known uh, world at that time, the churches that were scattered and planted. We know that Jesus instructed John to write these seven letters to the angels or the messengers, we might call it, Uh, of these churches. Some believe that this is the pastor. Some believe they are literal angels that over, that kind of presided over these churches. Others say they're messengers. I I tend to think they're the pastors that were leading up or the elders that led up these churches uh, there in that day. They are the first to read. They are the first one that have to take in what's being written to them. And as we sit here today and we read this letter to Ephesus, we also as a church have to read it and take it in and say, how does this speak to me? It spoke to a church 2,000 years ago, and how does this letter of Ephesians speak to me? Or this letter to Ephesus, how does it speak? We see that these, in all of these letters, they have commendations. In other words, the Lord is speaking something good of this church. But then he also gives reproofs in these letters. He gives rebukes in these letters to some of the churches. He gives promises and he gives assurances to them in these letters. These are the things that Jesus is communicating to the church. And I believe he's communicating these things to the church today. The same things that they had to read and take on board and to take in. And we have to also as we read our Bibles. Jesus says, John, write to the angel of the church at Ephesus. And what he says of the church at Ephesus The main thing that he says to them is that the church at Ephesus had forsaken their first love. This is a hard one for me. As a matter of fact, when I look at it, when I look at these seven letters to the seven churches, this is actually one of the more difficult ones. And the reason why it's one of the more difficult ones is because it can become a very subtle thing in the church. It can become a very subtle thing within our hearts that we could find ourselves as a Christian forsaking our first love. Getting away from that first love that we once had. To the letter at Smyrna, we're going to read that the church was being told by Jesus that they were going to suffer great persecution to the church at Pergama. Jesus writes, and he says, this church had need of repentance. The church at Thyatira. This church had a false prophetess within it that needed to be dealt with. The church at Sardis was a church that had fallen asleep And then the church at Philadelphia was a church that was encouraged that they would endure patiently. And then the last of the seven churches, Laodicea, was a church that was lukewarm. To be a lukewarm church. Jesus, as he was instructing John to write these letters, he said this about each one of these seven churches. He says in verse 2, he says, I know your works. Look at verse 9, church at Smyrna. I know your works. Look at verse 13, the church at Pergamos. I know your works. In Thyatira in verse 19, I know your works. In Sardis, I know your works. In chapter 3, verse 1. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, the church at Philadelphia, I know your works. And then in verse 15, the church at Laodicea, I know your works. He says it to, the same thing to each one. And he actually says it to Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem. I know your works. Not only do I know you, but I know your works. That to me is intimidating. He knows everything about you and about me. He also says to each one of these churches to him who overcomes. He says of the church at Ephesus to him who overcomes I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I like that. He says of Smyrna, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. To the church at Pergamos, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. And each one had this promise that was given, to him who overcomes. Who is an overcomer? How do we overcome? Well, it's very simple according to 1 John. 1 John says, who is he? And he asks the question, who is he who overcomes the world? And he gives the answer, He who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's an overcomer. You're an overcomer by your faith in Jesus Christ. You have already overcome this world by your faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You became an overcomer in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad? We read in Revelation chapter 21 verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. The letter of Revelation finishes with that promise. To those who would overcome. But we also as we read these seven letters, we need to talk about application. You see, if we don't talk about application when we read our Bibles, it's very easy for us to pick up the Bible and to read it as if this letter is being written to a church other than Calvary Chapel Fellowship. And we could say, you know what? Boy, that was a terrible church. Look at the problems they had there. Look at the things that they were doing. We need to look at every bit of Scripture and say, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to this church here in Winston-Salem? So that we don't look at others in other churches to be able to say, I think we're doing good. We need to ask ourselves, how well are we doing as a Christian? How well is this church doing in the Lord? I believe that these seven letters that we have here they have really a threefold application. Each of these letters had a specific application to that particular church in John's day. When he was writing this out and writing the things that he wrote to them at the church at Ephesus, those things were happening at the church in Ephesus but it also has a personal application to every individual that sat in that church at the church at Ephesus like it has application to you and I today that sit in this church it has a personal application not just to the whole church as a body but to me as an individual each local church and each person sitting within that church had to hear this letter read or read this letter and say, does this apply to me? Is this me? But we also, and some have done this, and I, and I tend to see this, that these seven churches that are listed here, if you look at 2,000 years of church history, you could see that these Seven churches and what was going on in these seven churches really is characteristic of a lot that has gone on in church history throughout 2,000 years of church. So we could span these seven churches out over a a span of 2,000 years of church history. The problem is the last church, the church of Laodicea, is not a very good church. And if that's the case, and we are in that days of the church at Laodicea, we'd like to think we're the church at Philadelphia where nothing bad was said against it. But are we the church? And is the church as a whole today the church at Laodicea? We could also see that these letters that were written to these seven churches... They were written to the leaders of these churches too. They had to take it on board. They had to take these things in as they were pastoring their churches. I have to take it in. I have to sit before it at a personal level and as a pastor in this church. When you read your Bible, it's always good to ask the Bible questions. You see, when you ask the Bible questions, and when you're asking it for personal reasons, then you're more than likely going to see change happening in your life. When I read this letter to the church at Ephesus, God, how does that speak to me as an individual? I want to give you... 14 questions that you could ask yourself before you start reading any book of the Bible. And if you don't write, able to write these down, they're short, but if you don't write them all down, I've put a stack of them on the back table. You can pick one up. This is what a list of some questions you could ask yourself Is there an example to imitate in this letter? Is there a sin to confess? I want you to personalize this. Is there a mindset that needs to alter in my mind? Is there an attitude that I'm reading here that I need to adopt? Is there a behavior that needs to change in me? Is there a standard to hold? Is there a lifestyle to emulate? Is there a promise or a claim in this book? Is there instruction to adhere to? Is there a doctrine that I need to believe in? Is there a heresy that I should avoid? Is there a rule to obey? Is there a principle to live by? Is there a change that needs to be made in my character and my conduct? And I would say that you could probably add some questions onto those 14. But if you want to list of 14 of them, you can pick one up on the back table. I would encourage you when you read your Bible to ask questions. Apply it. Try to seek to say, Lord, speak to me from this book. Let's start into our letter before I run out of time. We'll start with the greeting in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I love that introduction. I love that greeting, if we could call it a greeting. I love the fact that if... The messengers here, and I believe they are the pastors, that Jesus is holding those messengers in His right hand. That's where I want to be. I want to be in the hand of the Lord. But it also says who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches in Asia Minor. He's in the midst, and I, in my prayer, is that God and that Jesus would be in the midst. Of Calvary Chapel Fellowship, that he be in our midst this morning. A church that makes Jesus the primary focus of what they're about, I believe is a healthy church. They're doing something right. A church that seeks to lift up a man, to lift up just the, the ministry itself above the Lord. I don't think it's healthy I don't think it's right I think it takes away from where our focus needs to be I want to be right there in the hand of the Lord and I want to be right there I want Jesus to be in our midst I want this church through worship to lift him up I want him to be the head of this church don't you not me I want Jesus to be the head of Calvary Chapel Fellowship. And would He help us to do that? I believe that He wants us to refocus of why we walk through those doors every single week. I'm coming here to meet Jesus again. I'm coming here to hear from Him. I'm coming here to worship Him. It's why I'm here. God, would you help Calvary Chapel Fellowship to make you the center of it all? Jesus continues in verse 2. He says, giving them this commendation now, he's about to say some good things about this church. I would hope that these things would be said of this church. I know your works. Your labor. Your patience. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience. And have labored for my name's sake. And have not become weary. This is what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus. When I, when I read that, it makes me think as a pastor, what would Jesus write if he was specifically writing to Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem? What would he say? What would his commendation be? For this church. But he starts with I know your works. That in itself is intimidating. An easier way to think of it is that I know everything about you. I know everything that you do. I know everything that you think and I even know the motives of your heart wow I just thought I was somebody coming to church I didn't know the Lord really dug that deep keep in mind that he's omniscient omniscience means that he's all knowing there's nothing that is surprising the Lord He knows it all, and He knows our works here in this church. God sees all the facts, and He sees them clearly. He has full knowledge of all of our works, all of our deeds, and all of our actions. He sees it all. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We stand naked before the God with whom we have to do. It's all laid out. He says, I know your works. And you see, it's real easy to get caught up in just doing works within the church. We can do a lot of good things. There's the list. We saw and we read a while back out of Thessalonians about the church at Thessalonica, a model church, we could say. In a lot of ways. Did they have any sin issues? Yeah. But Paul said of this church, he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. And he says, knowing, brother and beloved, your election by God. He says, it's proof that your Christianity is real because the works that are coming forth out of your life, out of this church, they're real. Jesus says to this church, I know your labor. Or we could say, I know how you toil. And how you toil with patience. I see how you labor even to weariness on behalf of me. And for any one of us here, That are involved in ministry to any degree at all, or if you've been involved in ministry, been involved in a church and the work that goes on within a church, it's hard. It's not easy. The work of the ministry, if you get yourself involved in it, is hard. The work is hard. You have to toil at it. It's not easy. And many people have said that they have burned out, though I don't think that that's possible for a Christian to do if they were doing it in the strength and the wisdom of the Lord. But how we do burn out is that we burn out by giving it all up for Jesus. I'm tired. I'm physically spent. But it's for the Lord. And I think that that should be all of our desire. Jesus says, I know your labor. I see many of you in this church serving. And many of you in this church do not see some of the people that are serving in this church, laboring in this church in different capacities. You don't even see it. But they are. And they're doing it to the Lord. He says, I also, I know your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And it appears that this church at Ephesus, even in this uh, city, this pagan city that these believers had to live in, it appears that they were committed to spiritual purity. Within the church. In other words, they, they probably weren't ignoring sin. They weren't just letting it go. Whatever goes, goes. And there's a lot of uh, churches falling trapped to that. Just, you know, it, there's a lot of compromise. I think we're called as Christians to bear one another's burdens as Christians, but we're not to bear with those who are evil. Jesus says I know that you have tested those who say they were apostles and are not and you have found them liars there were those that were beginning to creep into the churches they were coming in with false doctrines they were coming in with immorality into the church you've tested them that's a good thing the church at Ephesus you tested them And you tested those that say they're apostles. And they're not. It became evident that they really weren't one of us. And I'm not talking about just one of us like a club. I'm talking about one of us as a child of God. You found them to be liars. It may be that verse 6 tells us who these were that were coming into the church. It's where Jesus says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans, they were, we might say, professing Christians. They profess to be a Christian. But we know that they, like Balaam of old, they were trying to introduce into the church a false freedom of licentiousness, which is really a lack of moral restraint that they were bringing within the church, especially in regard to sexual restraints. Do you think we have that issue in the church today? (laughs) Whoa, no, huh? (laughs) I mean we're living as a church today where this issue it's there i could spend a whole study just on that but we don't have time and you have persevered he's still commending them You have patience and you have labored for my name's sake. But let me ask you this. Have you ever found yourself complaining in ministry? You know, maybe you don't even say it to anybody, but under your breath, you know, so-and-so, man, they didn't show up. You know, hey. Hey. I'm out here mowing this lawn, I'm out here cleaning, I'm out here. Vac- I'm the only one. Where is everybody? That's, by the way, is complaining. And God hears it all. And if you complain, God sees those things. But notice what it says in verse three, "You have labored for who? For my name's sake. Are you doing it for me? or Are you doing it for others? God, forgive us for those times where we would complain. By the way, I've fallen trapped to that. It's not always easy to be a pastor and to be looking for those workers. And you have not become weary Not weary in doing good. Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season you will reap if you do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith, to one another. Do not grow weary in doing good. The Lord gave it all up for us. We're called to walk like Jesus. We're called to carry our cross. We're called to give it up for one another. To lay down our life even for one another. But then comes the complaint. In verse 4, nevertheless, sometimes when you see the word nevertheless, it's a good nevertheless. (laughs) But sometimes it's nevertheless, now I've got something else I want to say to you, but nevertheless, with all that commendation that I just gave to you about all the good that is happening in the church at Ephesus, but nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. I mean, doesn't all my good stuff just outweigh that, Lord? I mean, I've labored, I've toiled, I've done all these things. I've been faithful in it. Yet nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. warning it should actually frighten us I think to think that I could labor for the things of the Lord to exhaustion yet be doing it when I've left my first love and deceive myself in that it should frighten us The thought that we could be doing all the right things on the outward. Yet my heart is far from the Lord. Yet I've left my first love. How do we know if we've left our first love? I think we have to look for signs. I found five of them as I was writing things down there's probably more but lacking in our prayer life I'm not praying like I used to pray lacking in communion and fellowship with God and with other Christians I don't gather like I used to I couldn't get enough at one time lacking in our zeal for the truths of God's word hungering for it and for righteousness Lacking in pursuit of holiness in my own life. And lacking in zeal for sharing our faith and making disciples. And I remember the day when I I couldn't, I, I just, I had to go out, I had to tell somebody, I had to open my mouth. And I don't hate sin like I used to hate sin. I think we all have to ask ourselves the question, has there ever been a time in your walk where you've been more excited in your relationship with Jesus Christ than you are today? If you could say today, I'm more excited, more zealous, more on fire for the things of God to follow him, to know him than I ever have been in my Christian walk, I would say you're on a good course. but if not we're backsliding And that's harsh backsliding I don't consider myself backsliding just because I'm not so zealous just because I'm not praying as much just because I don't pick up my Bible and read it very often though I used to You see, backsliding is a gradual abandonment from the faith. That to me is the best definition I've heard of it. A gradual abandonment. It doesn't happen overnight. Some people think backsliders, they get out of bed in the morning and I'm just going to go backslide today. But backsliding is a gradual thing. We stop doing this, we stop doing that, and pretty soon we look and one, uh, our eyes get opened spiritually one day and go, man, where have I gone? I've gone so far away. I'm not where I used to be. But I want to finish with the question, how do we get back? How do we come back to our first love? What's the remedy? for backsliding? What's the remedy for someone who has gotten away from their first love? Jesus tells us. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place Unless you repent. Wow, I thought this was like a a great church, commendation, a church that's persevering and nevertheless. I have this one I don't have a hundred things against you. I don't even have ten things against you. I don't even have three things against you. I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. I think the first step to returning to our first love is to remember therefore from where you have fallen think about what the Lord has saved you from think about your days before Christ and where you are now look at what he has done in your life it's not always been an easy road as a Christian but look what God has done Remember, therefore, from where. Is it important for us to look back? To go back and remember those days? Oh, Lord, thank you for saving me from the pit. Thank you for saving me from my sin. I remember when I was lost in my sin. I remember when I was hooked on drugs. I remember when I was following this and doing that. And look what you have done. Remember from where you have fallen, don't lose sight of that. It's real easy as you start seeing things clean up in life as a Christian to start building a little bit of self-righteousness. Oh man, I'm really doing good. You know what I mean? I stopped doing the five bad things. You know, And, and I'm doing pretty well. And then the longer you are a Christian, you realize really how much failures you have. How much sin is really there. The more you look at Jesus, the closer you get to the Lord in your walk. You'll see your sinfulness even more so. The second thing is we need to repent. First, remember. Then repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to me. And repentance, it's been said, is the most beautiful word in the the Christian's language. I can actually go to the Lord and repent and turn the other direction and the Lord will forgive me. He'll set me right again. James four eight. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You remember that verse out of James? The third thing is, do the first works and what are the first works remember uh, the times when you spent time in the Word of God and loved it couldn't get enough of it and remember how you used to pray and felt no like I didn't feel like there was any blockage that I could just enter in in confidence with the Lord, and I knew that He heard me. Now I got this sin and this baggage and everything. Man, I have a hard time even going before the Lord. Remember the joy that you used to have when you got together with other Christians? Couldn't get enough of it. I just want to be around my brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes that's even more than our own personal family because they don't know the Lord sometimes and there's sometimes it's not even the same. Getting together with other Christians, encouraging one another, being there, praying for one another, lifting each other up, the body of Christ, especially the household of God. And remember how excited you were the first time you opened your mouth for Jesus and told somebody about him? Or if you've had an opportunity to lead someone to the Lord and they actually gave their heart to the Lord. Wow. I've said this before. There's nothing that I do as a pastor that excites me more than an opportunity to lead someone to Christ. That's it. Because I know what that means. Jesus finished this letter with a warning to the church. He says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you won't, then this is what I will do. I'll come to you quickly and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I will remove you as a church that you will no longer be effective for me. You'll no longer have an effective witness in this world. And unless you repent, your light as a witness is going to be diminished. Those candlesticks... Jesus walking in the midst of them. But how about if he walks out of the midst of them? And how about if those candlesticks are diminished in light? We're called to be light and salt in this world. And unless you repent, my presence will no longer be in your midst. That's scary to be doing church and to not sense that the Lord is even in the place? I don't even know if He's here. Have you ever been in a situation or a church setting or a place where you go, the Lord was there. He was in this place. My heart was stirred. That's a good indicator that the Lord is in our midst. Them out on a Wednesday evening, we have prayer meeting in one of the rooms there. God is doing some good stuff. I'm enjoying that. And then he gives them another word of encouragement. He always does that, doesn't he? It's like what Kyle read out of Exodus about the very character of who God is. But this you have. That You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. God hates those things. When somebody comes into a church and brings false doctrine in, when brings compromise in, brings things that start hurting the body of Christ, start telling Christians, you can do this and do that and live like this, and you're all right, don't worry about it. Hmm. Jesus closes with a promise. It's the same promise that goes out to all seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that it's plural. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's a promise to you and I. It was a promise to the church at Ephesus. He who has an ear. And this actually speaks to every one of us. Or at least everyone who will listen. You see, to hear, you have to listen. You can be deaf. And you can still hear spiritual things. let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In a sense, this promise that he's given here is for those who overcome for those who would repent to those who would return to those who would come back to their first love remember in the book of genesis in the first book of the bible the beginnings we read in genesis 2 8 that the lord god planted a garden eastward in eden and there he put man whom he had formed and out of the ground The Lord God made every tree grow that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then it says this, the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from there it parted and became four river heads. The garden. The beginning of God walking with man in the garden. He walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. It's what God desires. It was sin that separated us from that relationship. But then we read in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, We read that the tree of life is going to be restored. Paradise restored. You see how God is able to bring full circle from the garden to the end? He's bringing this whole thing full circle. And from the beginning to the end, there's this redemptive plan of God that ran all the way through to where we're going to have paradise restored. Revelation 22.1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. This is in heaven. This is that now in that re- renewed uh, uh, heaven that God has created. He showed me a pure river. John is seeing this vision, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then look what it says here in verse 3 and there shall be no more curse. You remember the pur- curse that was put upon? There'll be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. The church at Ephesus. Next week, we're going to read of the church at Smyrna. Lord willing, unless we're in heaven. The church at Smyrna. Next week, read ahead if you're here this morning and we're way over time i know but if you're here this morning and you need to come back to your first love how can i do a message like this and not give people an opportunity to say i need prayer i need to come back i need repentance if you're here this morning and you need that then I'm gonna ask that you come up here and we'll have some people can pray with you. If everyone leaves here today and, and doesn't need that or you're fine, then I'm gonna just praise the Lord. I'm gonna say, Lord, praise God. People are doing well. They haven't left there. They're not in a backslid. They're not in a they're they're in a place that's right with you. And so let's have Kyle come up. He's gonna just close a short, just a short song, um and if you're in need of prayer, come up and let's pray together. Let's, as a church body, let's be there for one another. All of us have probably gotten away from our first love at some point in our walk with him. And it's time to come back to that first love this morning. And so, Kyle, lead us and, and come up and pray. If, um, if we have more than one person up here, there'll be others up here to pray with you. God bless you guys.